You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing. Creator and host, Ken Vellante. Editor and producer, Peter Bauer. Okay, here I am sitting down with a phenomenally creative and very kind person who I am proud to call my friend, Sally Mars. Welcome to Something Rather Than Nothing. Thank you, my friend, Melissa. (laughs) So, um, well, let's dive right in. We'll start at the beginning. Were you an artist when you were born? That's an interesting question. I'd say to an extent, aren't we all? When mm-hmm. we're born, um, if art is the act of kind of using creativity to communicate, I think babies are naturally endowed with the ability to do so. So, um, so not to evade the the question, but I think where uh, we're all born with an innate creativity and a need to express ourselves, and may or may not do so as we grow in different mediums, even. Um, engineers or scientists or raising a child, I think is a, is an extremely creative act for many people. But, um, in the framework of your question and how I believe it's intended, um, I would say I was naturally creative, attracted to making things and not discouraged from doing so. So my answer would be yes. Well, I like the not discouraged from doing so because my follow-up question was going to be those people. So I agree with you that everybody is born with some kind of creativity in them. Uh, And then those people who later on feel like they're not creative, you know, where was that lost along the way? But you kind of answered it by saying, you know, you were given that space and that permission. um, And maybe if people who are stifled with, you know, oh, you need to get a real job or, you know, that's not serious stuff. I wonder if that somehow plays into it sometimes. I think when you're, for many people, and I've always wanted to, I've always had this sort of fantasy about starting some sort of outreach or charity that goes into schools and talks to um, little children about art and helps them understand that art isn't the ability to draw and recreate something realistically. Art Mm -hmm. is the ability to communicate how you feel in any medium or what connects us or an idea um, or that inspires us to think. And that in that we are all artistic or have the opportunity to be. But I think when you're little, or at least when I was little, um, being creative or artistic usually meant that you could draw well. And when I was little, I could draw well. And so because of that, I think that was reinforced Um, I think there's probably artistic little children who, um, who love to draw and who draw and their drawing is quote unquote behind, or they don't know to add a neck or whatever it is. It's more childlike and where they make a a person green. And because of that, people are like, oh, they're a bad artist. And I think that kind of um, thinking is what maybe stifles. Mm-hmm. Some people. So I think the ability to draw probably helped others to encourage my creativity. Though I will tell this story. When I was in um, first grade, like I was uh, a, a good drawer or whatever in first grade world. And we took a trip to the zoo. And after the zoo, um, 
we were encouraged to paint with tempera paints um, one of the animals we saw. And so I painted a giraffe. And in my mind's eye, I can still see the giraffe I painted on like that newsprint paper with tempera paint. And I made it brown with yellow spots with black inside the spots and and a long neck. And, and I was very proud of it. And um, maybe I was naturally rebellious or I don't know, but the teacher came over. Um, she was actually a substitute teacher kind of a longer term substitute teacher and her name was Miss Danazi. And so the kids used to call her Mr. Nazi and she'd get really mad, but Miss Danazi, but she was looking over my shoulder and she was like, that's such a beautiful painting. And I said to her, I think I'm going to put big red feet on it. And she (laughs) said, don't do that. Don't do that. You're going to ruin it. Mm. And I was like, okay. And she walked away and I took the red paint and I put big red feet on it. And so I thought I made it better and I was very proud of it. And unbeknownst to me, when I went home, she took scissors and cut out my giraffe (gasps) and cut off the big red feet and mounted it on another piece of paper and put it up for parents night. Oh my gosh. She cut the feet off my giraffe. Like (laughs) rude. Think about it. Like this adult was so annoyed by the actions of a six-year-old that she had to like take scissors and cut the feet off correct it yeah yeah Yeah. so sometimes society is just one big miss denazi who's like cutting the red feet off your giraffe and and sometimes it's the you know it's the prize from the newspaper because you made the football player look like a football player so Uh uh-huh yep so um yeah so born an artist uh uh yes and then encouraged in my expression rather than discouraged, yes. And I think that's just as defining. Yeah. So you, what would you say your art is? I know that you write. You're a phenomenal photographer. Um, like, what is, is is that? What you consider your art form, or do you do you also still draw? You should recreate that giraffe with the red feet, by the way. I, if you do, I should, I should. <laughs> you can't recreate things, but. Uh, <laughs> Um, I, uh, I, my favorite means of expression used to be, um, drawing and then painting. Um, I went to college as a painter and as a printmaker, printmaking is basically drawing, um, in a, in a concentration that allows you to focus on it. Cause they didn't have a drawing major, but you could be a printmaking major, which if you do, um, certain mediums like lithography or Italian to an extent, like it's like drawing. It's like drawing and printing multiples. So uh, I went to college for that and I did, I loved it. Um, I was always a rebel, always getting in trouble. Um, I was one of the good drawers, if that makes any sense, because I could make things look real. And at a certain point, I think it was probably my um, third year, my junior year, I lost all interest in that. And when I did, I just started making things rougher and faster and less finished and more, um, I don't know, expressive or hostile really in a way, because that's how I felt when I was 19, 20. And, um, and when I started doing that, uh, I was very discouraged. Um, in my uh, senior level printmaking class, uh, I had a professor professor. Um, I won't name his name. He was an older gentleman and he did these really beautiful pastoral landscapes in his printmaking. And we had a very small class on that level. It was maybe, I don't know, six 
students. And he began the first day and he said, it was kind of a self-directed class to some extent where you would work and then you'd have a critique every week. And on the first day of class, he announced that, um, he said, I grade on a curve. You know, one of you will get an A, two of you will get a B, you know, one of you will get a C, one of you will get a D, and one of you is going to fail my class. That's what he said. Wow. Okay. And so I raised my hand and I said, Mr. Oh, um, shouldn't it be your goal as a teacher that everyone in the class deserves an A? And, right. <laughs> and with that, I got the red ass. Um, as I call it, like none of the other students wanted to look at me, talk to me. (laughs) Um, We had critiques every week. He'd sort of attack some people's work and I would vehemently defend um, uh, against whatever it was he said, whether he was right or wrong. Um, No one wanted me to talk about their work because I was the the cursed child. (laughs) Um, uh, At the end of the semester, I did hand in the largest portfolio of work of anyone in the class. and uh, I was the recipient of the F. Oh. And, um, you know. And you decided that on day one, probably. Yeah, of course, yeah. of course. Yeah. So, you know, I had to kind of petition, like, the department to change it to a D, which I did. And that enabled me um, uh, to graduate, because otherwise I would have failed and lost those credits. But so um, that push against realism uh, into, uh, or repeating the world into self-expression is, is, a is a creative battle that I fight still, I think. Um, so I love to draw and paint. And then, um, after college, I had a, a boyfriend who oddly I tuned, it must've been traumatic because I can't remember his name though. I can picture his face and that, I know that's weird, but it's <laughs> true. And, uh, I got him a camera at a, um, at a thrift store, uh, a pawn shop for his birthday because he wanted to be a photographer and it looked kind of fun. And after we broke up, I bought myself a, a cheap camera. And once I got a camera, I realized that that was what I had been trying to do was capture a moment. So while painting or drawing and photography dovetailed for me and kind of overlapped, um, I found myself as a painter trying to get closer and closer and closer to a single moment. Like I'd have to complete a painting in one sitting. It was about one period of inspiration and exactly how I felt at the time. And when I found a camera, it became a more literal expression of the physicality of creating a moment, uh, uh, capturing a moment, if that makes any sense. Oh, it makes total sense. Yeah. um, Yeah. I, I think as a writer, you know, it's something I've done on and off. Uh, I think there were a couple events in my life that kind of coaxed it from me a little bit more. Uh, I had a job in an office making uh, where the um, practitioner made artificial eyes. And he would travel all over to make artificial eyes for people. And when he'd leave town, I, I, yeah, yeah. You know, and it was creative, right? You'd paint and match color. He was, you know, he was the boss. He was the main person, but um, yeah, he'd travel. And then I'd be alone in the office for a week. I took a straight office job for a little while, you know, trying uh-huh. to fit. And um, he'd be gone. So I just started kind of writing. And um, in in those early incarnations, I kind of did more fiction, always short. 
And then I found as a writer through the evolution, I was kind of trying to do the same thing I was trying to do visually. I was trying to convey a moment, convey a moment. And while sometimes I'll do some longer form uh, where the story itself has an arc over time or an arc over, over episodes, I think that idea of, uh, of having a moment and having someone else maybe understand just how I felt within that moment is what I try to convey in both photography and writing. And um, I do both in tandem and um, find inspiration in the same things to do both. That's beautiful. Yeah. And you do it so well. Um, I, I Later on, we'll talk about where to find your work, but I, I would invite everyone and hope everyone goes to take a look because you're, you, you convey those moments perfectly. People, the reader feels like they're right there living it. At least I feel that way when I, when I read your, your writing and I just saw your, you have a website now and, um, and the photos on there are phenomenal. So um, we'll get to that in a little bit, but uh, first I'm curious, why do you think you create? Um, that's a good question. Why do I create? Um, I think um, uh, teapot whistles so that the steam doesn't make the pot explode. And I think I create for the same reason. I think uh-huh. um the world around me creates steam and the way I keep my pot from exploding is to uh, create something. Um, For me, it makes me feel, it makes me feel purposeful and it, uh, it it makes me feel dutiful to an extent because I think um, the fact that other people have taken time to create artwork has, has proven so meaningful to me as a, as a person who takes in their work. Um, So I feel like the act of creation is sort of giving back what so many others have given to me in terms of taking in um, creative product or creative endeavors of others, um, creative thought. Uh, So that's part of it, but it's it's also like how I, I don't want to say blow off steam exactly. It's kind of how my world stays together. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's how I, figure it out, but it's also how I understand myself in some ways. Yeah. It's it's not a, it's not even a conscious decision. Like, like, Oh, I should clean the house. It's, it's like, Oh, you see a crumb on the counter and you just kind of naturally wipe it off. Or at least I do. And, And I guess the art of, of creating something, sitting down and write a story, I'm usually not planning on it and I have no, preconception about what I'm going to write going in it's like oh the keyboard and and time and I'm going to remember something so would you say your inspiration how how does that come about for you like you just said you have time and a keyboard and you sit down and something just comes to you or do you see something in your environment that sparks something or how, how does that process work for you they're a little different um for writing Um, sometimes it's, it's, the writing's a little, um, more indigenous to me because I don't need anything to do it. Uh, I, I, sorry, dog. I don't need a camera. I don't need equipment. I don't need to see something or be 
sparked by something. I have memory. I have, to some extent, empathy. I have imagination. And um, and I can just kind of do it at will. And when I have to do it for, for example, for my nonprofit, uh, mm -hmm. which you know about. Mutt, Mutt Indian, yes, and we can touch on that, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, I write for that every day, basically, and I try to personify um, what that particular organization, what Mutt Mutt Engine is. Uh, it's not someone else's. It's not a rescue that's interchangeable with other rescues. It's it's my rescue and my husband's rescue, and therefore it, it has my voice and, and my husband's voice and the voice of of the artistic collaborators who are also involved with it because it is a, a community effort. But um, every day I write for that and every day I just sort of sit down, make the time and just kind of do something. I don't go in with a plan. I don't write really write in advance. I just uh, kind of channel the moment. That's, that's about all I, the only way I can describe it. So when I do it, it's easier to do it because of my particular work ethic. Uh, on a personal level, it's easier for me to do it when it's quote unquote for something like mm -hmm. when I have a deadline or something I have to do or someone asks me to do something. It's easier for me to find the time space to do it because it feels like duty when I'm doing it um, for myself. It um, wrongly feels, I would say, self-indulgent, but um, I have to override the part of my work ethic that says you should fold that laundry before you sit down <laughs> and do this thing. So um, so that's a little battle I fight. But um, uh, with the photography, um, I feel like every day I see things that I mean to photograph, but I don't do it. Um, every day. I am most effective as a photographer when I leave my environment, um, not in a touristic way per se, but when I turn off the noise of the laundry and the phone calls and the things that feel obligatory and allow myself the space to do this one creative thing and focus on it. And um, I always joke that I'm a really terrible taker of snapshots and family photos. And like, I'm uh -huh. awful at that because for me, when I take a photograph, um, one of my art photographs, or I don't know the right word for it, but um, when I take one of those, it's really deliberate and focused and thoughtful. It's not a snap. And yeah. It, it's something that I really have to put a lot of energy into, not kinetic energy, almost sort of like still sturdy energy. And um, I find that a lot harder to do at home, not because the visual stimulation isn't there, it is, but because the distraction is too great. Um, because the writing happens in a different way in a smaller space for me usually, or in the middle of the night or, you know, first thing in the morning when you're waking up and a piece of a dream made you think of something that you can tap into, it's easier to fit that into my everyday life. So my inspiration isn't really big things. It's, it's little things. Um, uh, sometimes uh, um, when I taught photography, I once gave an assignment called the beautiful mundane. And um, I should just title my life that because um, <laughs> I think it's all the sort of not exceptional things. It's the, it's the way that such lovely small things can be 
regular and part of your reality that I find so beautiful. It's, it doesn't have to be the world's most beautiful orchid. It's that the world created tiny little purple flowers from creeping Charlie in, in your grass, you know? Um, uh, the way that dust, you know, highlights a, a, a sunbeam coming into your house, the way that mm-hmm. the legacy of, of humanity has created these walls around me and, and this space and this room and, and the warmth within it, like all those little things that are, I guess, sometimes taken for granted are wondrous to me and provide uh, inspiration to me very readily. I love it. I, 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 I love those small things. And I, I tend to see those small things too. And I don't know if you feel this way. Sometimes I feel a bit lonely because um, I feel like nobody else seems to see the things that I see. Do you ever get that feeling like you're, you know, you, you like you're the only one noticing that this branch twists exactly like this and, <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It can be a, a lonely feeling, but for me, loneliness is a normalized feeling to, uh, for me, uh, I find it more remarkable or noticeable to me that I do share than that I don't. So it, it ebbs the loneliness and it makes the connections I am able to uh, make with someone who sees the world like I do, um, mm-hmm. such as yourself, for example. <laughs> It, it, it makes it feel like extra extraordinary because it's not everywhere. And while the beauty is everywhere uh, to me, um, noticing it isn't everywhere. And it's that act of noticing that is even more beautiful. Yeah. I think there's something really cool about being with someone who doesn't see those things and pointing something out, you know, that, uh, yeah, and then sharing your photographs or your writing, I think, does that. Um, I think photographically, um, like I go to a lot of interesting places, but I have this very, um, very intense and innate need to personify my experiences. Um, uh, I think if the listeners could see my house, um, what they would see behind me is a personified space. It is not a color other people might choose or or like. It's full of objects that have no significance to anyone but me. Um, Some people might call it cluttered. Some people might call it busy. But to me, it is a a reflection of the fact that I exist. Mm -hmm. And um, photographically, I might be in some amazing place in... Mexico or Texas or wherever that's very beautiful and very visual. And I find myself always trying to break it down to the things that, that were my experience that I saw that weren't the same things as other people saw. Um, For work, once I found myself in this very beautiful area of, of the Yucatan called Merida, Mexico. It's a very beautiful colonial town uh, with a really interesting and rather unique kind of look. My clock's going to bong. I'm sorry. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) I love the sound of it. It's it's, it's fantastic. uh, Yeah. I love things that don't need power. Yeah. (laughs) But um, uh, I was in uh, 
the Yucatan in Merida working and I had a, I was working with a Mexican crew and the crew was from Mexico city. So they were very excited to be in this part of Mexico because they could do the tourist things that they never get to do while they're there. And they wanted to go to Chichen Itza. So Chichen Itza is a big ruin and it's very popular to go on a day trip from Cancun or from some other places. And it is really epic and really beautiful and also really touristy. And when we went, it, it was so kind of beautiful and striking and everyone's taking pictures. And I was like, oh my God, I just can't take the same pictures everyone else is taking. I can't do it. And, and at first I had bubble gum in my mouth. So I was blowing bubbles, taking my bubble and putting it in front of every picture I took of every room, which people say you're ruining your pictures. And I was like, Oh, that's kind of ironic. But, um, you know, eventually I became obsessed with a trail of ants that were carrying leaves like an ant highway. And I started exploring the ant highway and, like, I know you would do the same thing in the same circumstance. I think it probably went like four or five miles and it would go like around trees and up a branch and back down. And, and that's what I became obsessed with. And that's what I sought to capture ultimately in my photographs, not the, not the runes themselves, which were beautiful and yeah. which I could never possibly capture. It was the small thing that defined my own experience. That's amazing. I love it. I love that. Yes. I would take pictures of the ants too. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> So earlier you touched on briefly about your nonprofit, and uh, I think I think this is part of your art. It, at least it's what I associate with you as well. So um, maybe you could touch on it a little bit. It's a dog rescue called Mutt Mutt Engine. It is. I started it with my husband. It is maybe uh, it will be three years old in February. Um, I do travel to kind of remote places. Uh, Mexico is one of them. And um, I had an experience while I was there. Now it's probably four years ago. <laughs> and I had taken a trip to uh, an area on the Cabos Corrientes that is kind of more remote and you're traveling dirt roads and you're on this kind of back country and it's rural and there's beaches that are very dramatic and no one's on them. And uh, uh, I was with my driver friend, um, uh, who lives in Vallarta and, and, and we were driving to this place and um, there was this little farm that you have to cut across to go to this beach that we wanted to see. And so he negotiated with the farmer that we could cross his land. And then the, the farmer said, yes. And I think we traded him uh, some Coca-Colas or something. And then he left. And as we were crossing the, his land, there was a little black, he had many dogs that were running around, which is typical in Mexico. And he had one dog, a little black dog, and it had a ch chain around its neck, like a toe chain, really big. Mm. And the dog was probably, you know, 12, 15 pounds. And, mm. and he was tied to a tree on a short chain with this giant chain wrapped around his neck. And he was so fearful that if you went over, the all, other dogs were all friendly and running around it. This dog, like when I looked at him, he went onto his back and peed himself. He was just terrified oh. and scared. And he was chained yeah. to this tree and my heart was crushed. Yeah. And all I wanted to do was get that dog. And I wanted very badly to get the dog. And, and 
but he had this giant rope around his neck and we didn't have a bolt cutter. And, you know, the farmer had been nice to us and let us cut across his land. And we didn't understand the purpose of this. And my friend wasn't as concerned as me and I'm freaking out and I'm like, okay, well, where's the nearest place we can buy a bolt cutter. And, <laughs> and, you know, it's starting to get a little dark and it's really like an eight hour round trip if we get the bolt cutter and then we have to drive back. And, you know, I'm going through these logistics and, and, I had to surrender to the fact, and it, it's um, it was a really profound feeling in real time, but that there was literally nothing I could do to help. And uh, feeling so completely powerless and, and without a, a solution or an idea of a solution or even pretending there was a solution was um, very hard for me. So um, I told the dog that I would come back for him. And... Uh, I, I tried, I'll be honest. I went back two weeks later and the first thing I did when I landed was I got the, my driver friend and hired him. And I said, take me back out to see where that dog is, but the dog wasn't there. Um, Hmm. that's doesn't necessarily pretend of a sad story, but I think it was probably a really sad story. And, um, at the moment, I couldn't do anything to help that dog. I decided to kind of create a way to help other dogs. And one of the things that happened to me that happens to many people who are vacationing in areas that have, um, uh, in particularly, a lot of poverty, but sometimes just different um, cultural considerations, is you'll see mm-hmm. sad, what I call sad dog stories. You'll see a sad dog story. So, um, with my inspiration being that little black dog, I did a lot of research and I, in that area, initially Vallarta, and I found some partners and I vetted those partners and created a system so that people who are, were on vacation could essentially bring a little street dog home with them and I would place it in a rescue with another rescue organization. And I couldn't save my little black dog, but I was gonna save other dogs. Uh, and I was going to moreover, try really hard to save other human beings the experience that I felt when mm-hmm. when I saw something really sad and felt like I couldn't do anything about it. So I was creating something to do about it. And so when we started it, we thought, well, if we do one a month, if we do 12 a year, that's a really big deal. And, and we'll be proud of ourselves and we'll raise the money and we'll do this. And, and um, we thought that would be really good. 12 the first year. And the first year we ended up doing like 50 or 60. Um, uh, last year, 2021, we did over 600. Um, wow. I know it wasn't intentional to grow like that, but the need yeah. exists. And um, our charity basically looks to be nimble and flexible and do whatever's needed. So in a place like Tijuana, where we have a lot of relationships now, there's a lot of kind of humble dog lovers like you or me um, Mm -hmm. who want to do something, but maybe they don't have the means or support. So we give them the means and the support so that they can help a dog. And then we'll take that dog to a nice life. And then not only that, but we'll show them the dog's nice life so that they understand that their work um, 
has merit and, and pays off and bears fruit so that they feel inspired to keep going. Because some of those people in a place like Tijuana or even Los Cabos are like facing things that I can't imagine facing ever, much mm -hmm. less on a daily basis. I mean, I saw one sad dog story and, you know, four years later, I'm still grieving and, and picturing it. And, you know, I work with people who see terrible dog stories every day and are trying to do something about it. And I support them and, and try to make it so it's easier for them to do something about it. And so that it's easier for rescues that have more means and different audiences and are in different places like Minnesota. Minnesota or New York or the Pacific Northwest to say, well, yes, we'll take that little dog from Mexico and help it. Um, so it's a symbiotic relationship where we all work together. I think um, if you haven't worked in the nonprofit forum, uh, there can be a weird competitiveness, um, whether it's for attention or money or credit. Um, uh, it's hard to uh, under understand how it happens because for me it's so clear that we're more effective whatever our goals are as a as a community of nonprofits whatever our nonprofit seeks to do we're more effective when we work together so Definitely. we try to connect the dots and bring people together and and make things happen so that's what we do we help dog we 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 uh, our motto is um we help people who love dogs find dogs love. We help people who help dogs find dogs help. And that's kind of what we do. So. I love it. I love it. And you're in particular, your write-ups for the dogs and the way you tell their stories is, um, well, it, we were back at art, right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you're writing, but you, you really do convey their moment, um, in a really unique way. I think you guys are a really, really unique rescue. It, it, it's a, it's a creative thing that you're doing and a, and a good thing. Thank um, you. Yeah. And obviously you're making a big difference, you know? I hope so. I don't know if it's big, but it's, um, you know, I think every, every act of good a person tries to do, um, there's no scale to it. It's just mm -hmm. good. So just hopefully good. we can join into that. Um, we can tap into that idea that it doesn't matter how big it is or isn't like it's good. And, and that matters. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. Well, I think those hundreds of dogs and all the happy hundreds of families that took them in are probably, I hope pretty, so. I, I think that's big. It, it It's like a ripple effect, right? Right. So, right. I love it. For each dog, for each of those 600 some dogs last year, you know, there's probably at least 10 people who, um, from the person who saved it to the person who vetted it to the person who, you know, kept it for a few days to the person who transported it to the foster, to the family that adopts it or the person that adopts it, at least 10 people probably got a real spark of joy out of it. <laughs> it's amazing. And then all the people who see the happy endings to, you know, um, yeah. either through social media or, or just through you. Um, living it, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah or it spreads yeah. to them. Yeah. Um, so, I get, this kind of ties in my next question to what we're talking about, which is the role of art. What do you think the role of art is? So you use it for yourself, like you said earlier, with you know letting out the steam, or and but also you use it for you know your rescue and and to help um, convey messages to people about these dogs in this instance. So what what do you think the role of art is? Well, um, I have a I've thought about this a lot 
So, uh-huh. um, so I actually have an, an answer or a definition that I work with. I would say what I do um, with the dogs is, is creative and it's a creative act, but it's not quite the same of art as art necessarily, because mm-hmm. for me, um, art is how human beings communicate with other human beings about the human experience across time. Hmm. I think it's a, you know, language changes, um, visual cues change, music changes, everything in the world changes, how things look changes, but the human experience itself, the experience of love, grief, rejection, fear, joy, is a human experience. And I think every human being will experience the full realm of emotions and emotional states of being. Um, I think we as observers of other people's lives sometimes say, well, that person shouldn't be sad or that isn't a tragedy or that person should be happy. But to the person experiencing those states of being, they're very real and very authentic and there's no way to judge them. I think the thing that's universal across time is that experience, is that emotional experience. And I think art is the means by which we convey those experiences across time, across all boundaries, across language, across culture. So that's what I think it is. <laughs> it's almost like a, like a beacon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like a, it's like a language everyone speaks. That's kind of how I see it. I mean, um, I can look at a work of art or read a poem that was written 500 years ago and still understand what the creator was conveying mm-hmm. on a very kind of emotional, experiential level. And I think that's its purpose and also why it's so important. Um, mm. I, I think when we understand that the experience of our humanity is universal, not just across um, our world at our moment, but at any given moment, it kind of creates an interconnectedness that is is the antidote to loneliness. And I think that's what artists ultimately serves to do. Kind of desperately needed in these times, I feel like too. And I'm sure this has happened in history before, but we're in it right now, I feel like, where we have to go back to the basics, you know, and just sure. think of the human experience versus what we're experiencing right now in our daily lives. Exactly. Go, go, go a little deeper. Exactly. I think um, uh, Dennis Johnson, the novelist and the writer, wrote a book that I didn't really like exactly called Already Dead, but it was... Um, it, it was conceptual. The novel itself was a concept. And the concept was that this one guy was injured and dying. And he was explaining in his moment how alone he felt. And his letter that he writes about his extreme loneliness is found by someone who feels just as lonely as that person did in that moment. And that loneliness itself can be something that binds us and proves that we're not really alone. Mm-hmm. Like in other words, the experience of loneliness um, in its universal nature connects us. 
And yeah. I really enjoyed that concept within that novel. And I think about that kind of a lot, like that our isolation con- connects us to other people who are isolated or our loneliness connects us to everyone who's lonely um, or our joy connects us to everyone who's joyful. And, you know, uh, it's, it's, we're much more alike than different. Hmm. So apropos these days too, where, where we have been everybody in some form isolated, you know, at least at some point in the last couple of years. So yes, yes. Yeah. I I mean, I think about like, um, uh, I like you live in Minnesota and I think it wasn't that long ago, whether we're talking about the indigenous people who were here or the settlers that Mm -hmm. were here uh, simultaneous and after, like they probably went a whole winter without ever seeing anyone except this really tight little group, maybe their immediate family. And, and, and they, they survived and thrived. And and what the act of seeing someone in the springtime after, you know, passable, what it must've meant to them. And I just hope that when this ends, that we, we all can share what that experience must've been like when after a long, hard winter of the, of the soul, you know, the roads Mm -hmm. to one another are passable again. Yeah, it's going to be beautiful. <laughs> you can't wait. Yeah. So I hope it makes us all less angry and, and yeah. softer. Yeah, I think there's going to be great art coming out of all this, too. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, uh, I won't lie. It's been um, a productive period for me, not photographically so much, but definitely with the writing because... Mm-hmm. Uh, I do have fewer of the distractions. My work's been slower. My day job's been slower. Um, you know, I'm not doing other things more. And so I can focus more on those things. And And it's been a productive time. i looking forward to, you know, I've been very happy inside my egg. And I'm looking forward to, you know, being the chick that emerges from it <laughs> I feel that I've been very productive too in artistic ways during this last couple of years. And um, I wonder sometimes if part of it was the introspection, there's a chance to actually do more introspection. And um, even though I sometimes crowdsource, you know, inspiration uh, from the outside world, but in this case, a, a lot of it came from the inside, which I thought Agreed, was kind of 100%. interesting. Yeah. Agreed 100%. And like, I don't know. Uh, I mean, um, in terms of writing, uh, I've been mining my own memories um, mm-hmm. to a very uh, fruitful and heavy extent during these times because the normal things that might inspire me, like, oh, you know, observing someone at the post office or, yeah. or you know, seeing a letter on the ground or, or whatever it might be, those have been, those experiences have been absent. So I've been tapping into sort of this, a lot of introspection. Um, You know, I've been wondering how long that can last and thinking like, oh, I need to make some new memories that I can draw from, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but for now. Yeah, it has been odd with the, you know, my my dad up in Canada, we don't see each other much, but he'll call and I mean, we really have nothing to tell. (laughs) It's just been very redundant the past couple of years. Um, (laughs) So, uh, well, I'm winding down on the questions here for the podcast, and this is kind of the, one of the big questions is why do you think, why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? Well, um, 
when I was a little girl, I used to get very, very frustrated about the concept of the universe or the idea of nothing, because um, I would be like, well, you know, if it ends, there has to be something after, like there, mm-hmm. you know, it can't just end. And I would sort of like in my head picture, sort of like a thick glass bubble with the universe in it, and <laughs> kind of like this white empty space behind it. And then there has to be something behind it. And I, I contemplate things like infinity or the universe. And, yeah. and I, I'd get very, very frustrated about it. <laughs> and one day it occurred to me that nothing is something. Mm-hmm. And once I realized that I felt much more calm. So when you <laughs> ask, why is there something rather than nothing? I'd say there is only something. There is no nothing because nothing is something. And I don't mean to be a riddle. No, I feel the same way. (laughs) Nothing is something. Yeah. 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 So so there's something rather than nothing because there's no such thing as nothing. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's, it sounds hopeful somehow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. Um, well, the last component of this chat is how can listeners connect with you and your art? So where where can they go or how, how can they reach you or see what you do? Um, where's, well, good, where's a good place to go? My name is Sally Mars, Sally with a Y, Mars like the planet, which is in and of itself a great gift to me in my life. <laughs> my maiden name was Schneidkraut and um, <laughs> 12 letters and four consonants squished together in the front and and like no one ever I grew up with no one ever wanting to say my last name like oh and um uh when I got married and changed my name it was like little things like having a reservation or going to the dry cleaner and people would say Sally Marks and I'd be like yeah <laughs> like no one ever said Sally Schneidkraut so <laughs> so my name is Sally Mars. My website is sallymars.com. That's where my photography and my writing live. Um, If you're interested in dogs, dog rescue, or my literary work surrounding dog rescue, that's muttmuttengine.org, right? .org. (laughs) It's (laughs) muttmuttengine.org. And we'll share the links too, so people can click directly. Yep, mutt with two T's, engine with an E-N-G. Um, and, uh, but we are most active uh, on Facebook. Facebook is our, um, our, our most active forum just because there's so much um, interaction. And mm-hmm. uh, while well, we're on Instagram as well, and we have a beautiful Instagram page that we're proud of, um, the ability to exchange or to write uh, or to have language attached to the images is... Yes. Um, is more prevalent on Facebook. So if you go on Facebook and you look for Mutt Mutt Engine, you will find it. <laughs> I, I suggest you go to Mutt Mutt's Facebook and to Sally's website. Um, go go take take a little time out of your day and have some me time and do some reading and look at some pictures. And, and maybe, who knows, you'll end up with a new furry family member at the end of the day. Yeah, if or if anything well. else, like maybe you'll just feel a little less alone when you're done. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, well, Sally, thank you so much for being here and for helping me man the ship while uh, Ken Volante, who who runs this podcast, uh, was out. I really appreciate your time. And um, thanks to you and to Ken and to anyone who is listening or listens or will listen. I, I really appreciate that you listened. 
<laughs> Beautiful. Thank you. Have a great night. Thank you. Bye. Bye. This is something rather than nothing.